Colossians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, would you open them up there? We're going to be looking at uh, primarily verse 12 and um, some of the verses following that, only in context. Uh, Next week, we'll get to those verses. We're finishing up the third and final portion of this series on marriage called the Lord of the Rings. And we're in the third portion, which is the return of the king. What can Jesus Christ do to recapture, redeem, and heal and restore our marriages? Now, you might be saying, well, I'm really not married, and I don't know if I ever will be, or at least not anytime soon. I don't know why I'm here. But I can tell you, if you just take your Bible for a second, and let me briefly do this. Look at what Paul st- starts out saying in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he lists a bunch of character attributes. And he's working his way to verse 18. All of these attributes are part of the context. Now, everybody look at your Bibles for a second. Maybe your Bible has a paragraph heading between verse 17 and 18. That's not inspired. That was put there to organize the scriptures by men and women. What was inspired was the continuing flow of thought from the Apostle Paul from verse 17 straight into verse 18. So if you get to verse 12 and you start reading that we are the chosen, holy, loved ones of God, then really what you're reading is that provides a foundation so that wives can submit to their husbands, so that husbands can love their wives, so that children can obey parents, so that fathers don't exasperate or provoke their children, and so that slaves, or in our current vernacular, employees can honor their employers. This is what Paul is saying. This is why we're studying this. This is why, whether you're married or not, this sermon has deep, deep, and profound implications on your life. Let me tell you why it is so important through a story. How we see ourselves or who we see ourselves to be, it's called identity, greatly influences even almost determines how well we can love. I learned this the hard way, and it was 1990. Denise and I had only been married for a little while. We lived in an apartment, a two-bedroom home, little apartment, and my mom and dad had given to us a waterbed, one of those tubed waterbeds that have eight tubes in them. And it was 90 degrees, Lynchburg, Virginia. And I'm working in a psychiatric center with teens, and I'm running around all day with them, and I'm drinking a lot of water. And I went to bed that night, and around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and underneath my rear end, was, it was all wet. And I'm like, I can't believe, at 23 years old, I wet the bed. I didn't even want to wake her up. I snuck out, cleaned up, was highly humiliated, put a towel down, went back to bed, and left that morning before she could get up. But friends, in all seriousness, all day, that day, I could hardly even look at people in their eyes. I'm thinking, wow, this is really strange. I am so humiliated. I I went to bed that night again, and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning again, and not just underneath my rear end my entire side of the bed was soaked and I'm going I can't believe this I woke up I woke my wife up and I said honey I'm sorry but you married a bedwetter 
I don't know what's happening, but I've lost control of my bladder. And she says, you know what? Let's try something. I thought surgery. She said, unzip the top of the bed and thank God there was a hole in the tube. I was never more thankful for a catastrophe in our early part of our marriage. Friends, I'm telling you, even though that's humorous, it profoundly affected the way that I could relate. I was humiliated with my wife. I couldn't look at people throughout the day. I hardly had an opportunity to really meaningfully interact. I had the opportunity. I hardly had the ability to do it. Who we see ourselves being, friends, listen, write it down if you want, profoundly affects our relationships. All right, let me get into this. Ready? How does Jesus Christ transform a marriage? How does he do it? It's a simple question, but in order to answer that question, you've got to get a lot more deeply down than the surface. What would you think? Now, listen, I've been in this for 10 weeks now. This is my 10th week in this series. I've got two more to go. What if I were in this series all 10 weeks and every week you came to this series on marriage, I gave you tip after tip after skill of how to love your spouse in a better way. If you were like me, at the end of that time, I might enjoy brief success, but sooner or later, I'm coming back to who I am. And it's going to be the same way I was before the service started. In fact, let me give you some of the 10 of the 43 expert tips that I found this past week. Here they are. Compliment more than you criticize. In fact, each time you do criticize your husband or your, or your wife to your friends, tell that friend three positive stories about him or her. Always make time for the two of you. Remember that people do fight. It's how you do it that matters. Before starting an argument, consider if it's really worth it. Agree to disagree. Number seven, never ever mention the D word, which is divorce. Do you want to be right or do you want to be married is number eight. It's highly subjective. And some of us have found both. Number nine, always believe that you got better than you deserve. You know, I, I, he's not here so I can say this. I have a profound dislike for Matt Millen. You know why? He has told me more times than I can remember that Denise, my wife, has married down. I don't know why he says that. And number 10, never use the words always. I love this. Never use the word always or never in a fight. Great advice. Now, they are all good, or most of them are really good relational skills. But if you're like me, success is going to be short and maybe not even all that sweet. If the heart of selfishness and pride remains unchanged, now friends, you've got to get this. If our hearts don't change, then a satisfying and God-glorifying marriage is still unattainable regardless of how many skills you try to live. And that's why we've spent so many weeks looking at our problem with sin. It's fundamental, profoundly at the root of all of our hearts and our incredibly great need for God's grace to set us free. Because if our hearts are off, then our marriages are going to be off kilter. And they're going to struggle to stand up in the storms of life, 
that blow our way. Friends, this is quite simply the target for God's grace. Do you remember Proverbs 3, right? Above all else, guard your hearts, for from it flow the issues of life. If you want life to change, then God must do something in your heart to bring transformation. This is why we looked at all the glimpses of grace last week that God gave Adam and Eve right after he sentenced them because of their sins. In fact, if you would let me for just a minute, can I paraphrase what God was saying to Adam and Eve? Here's what I think he was saying. He's saying, you two are in a mess. And you got in that mess, Adam and Eve, because you tried to rule your own lives instead of trusting me. And if you're going to continue to try to rule your own lives instead of uh, trusting me, then Adam and Eve, you're going to continue to be in a mess of sin. You're going to try to outdo one another in the area of headship. You're going to experience sorrow in the area of child rearing, a family. You're going to experience sorrow in the area of your career. In fact, until Adam and Eve, until you turn to my son, Jesus Christ, you're going to experience sorrow. And if you do, then grace is going to flood your hearts. And it's going to reverse this curse. It's going to undo the bars of this sentence. And it's going to enable you to live, Adam and Eve, in a fallen world that is fractured by sin. And it's going to let you live with hope and purpose and power and strength. Friends, that's where we're going this morning. How do our marriages change? How does God's grace do that? His grace is abundantly available through Jesus Christ. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can I tell you what's happening? You can see this in Romans 5. You can see this in James chapter 4. Here's what's happening. If you humble yourself, here's what God does. He opens up a Niagara Falls-like torrent of grace and he pours it right down deep into your soul. And he doesn't just do it once. He does it over and over and over and over. And so it overflows with grace to all of those that you're around preeminently nobody more importantly than your spouse not here on earth see god doesn't need our grace does he have you ever thought about that god doesn't need our grace because grace biblically is always god's antidote for sin and god has never sinned against us it's we who are in need of grace and grace comes into our hearts and let me tell you what happens before we get into verse 12 what happens is this grace that's flooding our hearts begins to change our hearts listen from the inside out parents you know this how many times have you tried to get your children to change behavior you threaten you cajole them you encourage them you reward or you punish them and over and over you find out i can't change behavior i can modify it but sooner or later that same heart is still intact and grace changes our hearts from the inside out now listen so that we want to serve one another so that i want to be patient with other people so that what comes out of my mouth is not forced it's natural kindness why because grace has changed my heart 
See, grace is the divine initiator. It's the God-given enablement to respond to what he asks us to do in obedience. You can't obey God without grace. I can't either. And it's not just that we've been given grace, and now, listen, this is so important. It's not that you've been given grace, and now you're obligated to give grace to others, because the word obligation kills grace. It's that we've been given grace, and now I want nothing more than to give grace to others. And now God's given me the ability to do it. Do you see now, friends, listen, do you see why God, when he banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he gave them these sentences? Don't you see now why he gave them glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of his grace? Without his grace, we're hopeless. See, marriage is based on grace. And that vertical grace that's experienced at the cross of Christ through his death, and it it pours into our hearts at that moment, it extends out from us. And it's not only that marriages are based on grace, listen, they're meant to be public displays of God's grace. Did you know that your marriage has a purpose? It has a redemptive purpose? Friends, every one of you who are married, every one of you who will ever be married, God has at least one ultimate purpose for your marriage, that it will lift up and magnify the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. So that when people see your marriage, something ought to happen inside them that says, wow, Is that really how Jesus loves his bride? Is that really how the bride submits to her husband Christ? I want to be part of that. I don't know of too many, if any, more powerful witnesses to God's grace than a marriage that was troubled and rocky, but becomes beautiful and wonderful because of what Jesus Christ does through grace. To me, that's one of the most powerful displays of grace. And so now we come to verse 12. And what we're going to see in Colossians 3, verse 12, is that identity-building roadblock of grace, building blocks of grace. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things that, God, that Paul gives us that says these three are what builds Christian identity, and when your Christian identity is built, then the the structure on top of it is one of beauty, one of glory, and one of satisfaction. Three God-given graces that form for us a new identity. Here's the first. We are God's chosen. Look what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you're reading from the NIV, this is not very apparent. If you're reading from the ESV, you can see it, or the original Greek. Here's what Paul is saying. He's going to tell us, put on your new garments in grace. Remember last week uh, when we saw Joshua the high priest dressed in filthy clothes, and the angel of the Lord Jesus commands the ones around him, take off those filthy clothes and put on them new garments, white, made white by the blood of Christ. You see, we are meant to wear new garments, and when we put them on, you've got to put them on. And when you put them on, Paul is saying, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Put on your new... Wait a minute. I've got to tell you something before you even do that. 
I got to tell you what you look like when you're not wearing them. I got to show you Christians at Colossians and Christians at Cornerstone. Here's what the one in Christ looks like when they have no spiritual clothes on. And the first thing I want you to see in the mirror is that you are God's chosen. God has chosen you. Paul is brilliant. The Apostle Paul is an awesome writer. See, he's laying a foundation that holds up all of our relationships, especially marriages. And if we will just build with him, then our marriages are going to change. And the first part of this foundation of grace, God has chosen you. Friends, listen to me. Do you really, really know who you are if you're a Christian? I mean, has it really fundamentally struck you that God has chosen you? And under all these clothes that Paul's about to tell us to put on, what God sees is that we are beautiful and that we are awesome and that we are glorious to look at. That's what God is saying. It's the way you look in God's eyes. Saw one of the trailers for the new twilight series movie new moon i'll give you my opinion i think you ought to avoid that series i don't think there's anything redemptive in it and i think it leads particularly young girls astray in the area of romantic relationships because if you fall into love i'm pretty sure you're going to end up falling back out Love's a choice. But in that movie trailer, you saw the, the eye of the wolf, and in the eye of the wolf, you saw the reflection. You saw Bella reflected in it. You see, when, God, when you see the eyes of God, friends, I'm going to tell you, when you see the eyes of God, and someday we will, what you're going to see reflected in them is you. Because God chose you. You might say, but I don't understand why God would choose me. I have failed him so many times. I have messed up my life so much, friends. I hope you're saying that, because if you're saying that, you're speaking the language of grace. God doesn't need those who got it all together. Why would you need his grace? God specializes in taking people who cannot bring their lives into order and saying, let me flood your hearts with grace and change your hearts and wait till you see what I'm going to make of you. Because you're mine. It's what grace does. And we see this in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession and listen to this, this is Israel. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. Friends, you remember those times where teams would be picked, captains would be chosen, and sometimes you'd be on that wall along with 20 other people, 10 other people, and names would start to be selected. They would come off the wall and get behind their captain, and it would get down to four people on a team, and you're praying. The anxiety is building. I don't want to be last. 
This is so embarrassing. And all of a sudden it's down to two people and you're still one of them on the wall. And now humiliation is setting in. Now you just wish you were a better athlete, wish you were better at whatever that activity was. And finally you're the last one chosen. Do you remember how that feels? Do you remember how it feels maybe at a school dance where everybody else seems to get asked to go out on the floor to dance, but you're on the wall watching the outside looking in? Friends, listen, the one in Christ will never, ever, ever experience what it's like to be unwanted. Never. And when you get picked and when you get chosen, when God sets his love on you, it is relieving. It is powerful. It has the power to convince you that you're important, you're precious, you're wanted, you're loved, you're beautiful. Isn't this what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. There's always a connection between God's love and the ones that he's chosen. In fact, he says it again in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or the one that God has chosen? Friends, listen, you might have made a mess in your life, but listen to me. Nobody can make a charge stick against you. You are dressed in righteous robes. Your sin has been forgiven. There is no foothold for the devil unless you give it to him. But you know what the devil does? He's really, really brilliant. The devil's just plain smart. Because you know what he does? He finds willing people who will be his mouthpieces. And the mouthpieces of Satan are the ones that remind you of your failures. And they like to remind you that you're not quite up to the standard. And they like to remind you that there's still a gap in your life between what you ought to be and what you really are, and that's called shame. And God is here to tell you this morning, friends, that there is no charge against you that can stick because God has chosen you. But he goes on, and he says, the second building block for Christian identity is that you're holy. We're holy. Paul gives us this description. He says, not only are we chosen by God, but friends, did you know that God looks at you and he sees you as being holy? But you might say, but Tim, you don't know what I did last week. Friends, let me explain to you what it means to be holy. And maybe I could do it better by telling you what it meant in the tabernacle or in the temple. You see, there were lots of utensils and lots of artifacts the altar the priestly garments the pots the spoons all of these were called in the bible holy and they were holy not because they glowed with cosmic pixie dust that's not what makes anything holy what's holy about them is that god said that pot is mine and it can't be used for any other reasons or any other purposes or any other uses than in my temple to bring sacrifices to me to please me. You see, the pot that was made holy was taken out of the kitchen and brought into sacrificial worship. And it was dedicated exclusively for God's purposes. That's what it means to be holy. It means that you were brought out of the world, out of the common 
picked up by God, put in Christ, in, inserted into his covenantal community, his church, and now you're dedicated to him. He's got a purpose for your life, and he calls you holy. That's what it means, friends, to be holy. And again, you might be saying, that's not the way I live. You know what the Bible does? First Peter, Peter links the fact that we're chosen with the condition of being holy. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he goes on and he links it with the purposes for our life. He says, you're a chosen race. Same verse, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And here it is, a people for his possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, that's holy. I got that, Pastor Tim, but I still don't live holy. Well, John Piper might have a word for you. He might have some comfort. Because he says this, holiness is first a position and a destiny. You heard that, right? It's a position and a destiny before it is a pattern of behavior. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. 17 years ago, it was 1992, I first became a pastor. Friends, I didn't want to be a pastor. My wife said, why don't you be a youth pastor? I said, why? Anybody could be a youth pastor. I'm in professional counseling. That's why I earned this degree. The Lord opened up a door and he put me into the youth ministry, into the youth pastorate. And he made me positionally a pastor. But friends, for 17 years now, I've been trying to learn what it means to live out being a pastor. I didn't know anything about being a pastor. I never went to seminary. When I, the first day I became a pastor, I sat in the office they gave me and I said, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? Do I call kids? I had to learn. And that's what it means to be holy positionally that's who we are but now we're learning how to live holy functionally in our lives and god says positionally he sees you and what he sees is somebody wrapped around in the garments of his blood he declares you righteous no longer under his wrath and he's taken you out of the world and he's put you into the community of christ he's made you part of his bride and then he says, I have a purpose for your life. I've got a reason I brought you out of the world. Now I've got things and lives for you to live so that you can bring me glory. That's what it means to be holy. And friends, it's not just that we are chosen. It's not just that we're holy. These are two of the three building blocks for Christian identity. You know, let me pause for a second. Man, this is easy to preach. Easy to preach and friends, pretty easy to listen to. But to take it from the ears down to the heart, you've got to pound it down there like tent stakes. They're going to anchor your tent in storms. So get it down into your souls. Get it down. I'm telling you that when God sees you, he sees somebody that he has chosen, somebody he's taken out of the world and made holy for his purposes. And finally, he sees somebody that he is absolutely in love with. God loves us. We are God's beloved. 
Now, I heard this last week a Christian author speaking. She was speaking to women. And she was telling them that nothing will establish your identity, who you see yourself being, more than who you choose to love. And I heard that, and I listened to that, and I started to deal with that. I started to kind of run that through my mind, and I thought, is that really true? Because here Paul is saying, it's not who you choose to love that determines your identity. It's who has chosen to love you. God. The fact that God loves me, and I utterly undeserve it establishes for me an identity that says if he loved me when I did not deserve it, then he'll never take his love away when I continue to not deserve it. I don't have to manipulate God. Do you understand what that brings by way of freedom in marriage? If you no longer have to fear that your spouse will no longer love you if you get heavy, overweight, if you let the house go, if you fail at your job and your career, when you no longer have to worry about their love for you, that it is a constant, ever-present guarantee, it frees you to love and to live. That's the power of Christian identity. We are God's beloved. It's the third description of who we are in Christ. It's the third building block of Christian identity. Friends, listen to me, please. When you contemplate the love of God, know this, God, and I'm not exaggerating the word, the, the scripture, God is smitten by you. He calls you his treasured possession. He says about you, Christian, that you're the pupil, the apple in his eye. He says he dances over you in delight. He knows every hair that's on your head. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows every thought that goes through you. And he even watches over you when you sleep at night. This is the God who loves you with such an powerful, incredible love. He'll never let you go. Are you starting to see why this is so freeing in marriage? You know what I deal with all the time? I hate the word need. There are really not very many needs in our life. There's a lot of wants. And when wants wants grow, they become demands. And when demands grow, they become needs. And when they become needs, then we become entitled to get them any way we want. It's a need. And wives, if you need your husbands to love you, and husbands, if you need your wives to respect you, then you will demand it when you don't get it. And this is what frees us in Christianity. I'm free from the enslaving power of need because I know who loves me. I know that I'm holy. I know that I'm chosen. And I I have grace in me that changes my heart from needs to want to love you, want to respect you, want to be kind to you, want to forgive you. And it brings marriages to the next level. We are God's beloved. We are as bride, we are as church, we are made up of saints who are made holy by the blood of Jesus. And these three building blocks to Christian identity, friends, they are not sips. They are fountainheads for a loving and a gracious marriage. I will even say this, if you don't know who you are in Christ, 
you cannot have a marriage that brings him ultimate glory. You can't. These blocks of identity are the muscles that pumps intimacy and forgiveness through our marriages. And we need to hold on to them and not ever let them go, friends. We are chosen, we are made holy, and we are loved by God. And I encourage you every morning, at least for this week, if you can keep doing it, it'll become a habit. Every morning, swing your feet to the floor and stop. Don't rush into oblivion. Stop and redemptively pause and reflect. I am God's chosen. He has loved me and he has made me holy. And today I have the opportunity to live out his purposes. And those who are married, the number one direction that God wants you to live out those purposes is to the person either on the left or the right of you in that bed. That's the number one. And that's where it starts. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that you've made us holy. Thank you that for whatever reason, God, you have chosen us. Lord, you loved us while we were yet sinners. The Bible says you loved us while we were still at war with you. And Lord, like John Newton, you flooded our hearts with grace and you changed us from angry, malevolent, God-haters, throne-sitters into those who want nothing more than to give you glory. That's the power of grace. And it, it, is, it, it is widely, widely available through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my friends, if there's any here that have not yet bent their knee to Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray they'll come to the throne of mercy. And give him their lives and receive from him eternal life. Confessing their sin and realizing your love and your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, for those who are already Christians, they have already done that. Lord, I pray that you would flood their hearts with grace. And for marriages that will turn from those who are trying desperately but unsuccessfully to love to those who are naturally forgiving and kind and gracious. May our hearts be transformed. We love you. We love your word. We look forward to next week to see what a, what an, a Christian identity looks like in life. And may it be true of us. That's the way we live. And in Jesus' name, amen.